What a beautiful picture of who Christ is and what he's done. And we're going to see a little bit more of that today. If you want to turn back with me to Mark chapter 14, we'll see some of Isaiah 53 coming to pass. Beginning in verse 43. We've been marching through this slowly at times, a little faster at other times, but we are, of course, of course at Gethsemane, and we are now at the arrest, the betrayal and arrest of Christ. Verse 43 begins, And immediately while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi. And he kissed him. And they laid hands on him and seized him. But, those, but one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, Have you come out as, a rob- as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But let the scriptures be fulfilled. And they all left him and fled. And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body. And they seized him, but he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. And they led Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. And Peter had followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death. But they found none, for many bore false witness against him. But their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands. And in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet even about this their testimony did not agree, and the high priest then stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, What further witnesses do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death, and some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him, saying to him, Prophesy! And the guards received him with blows. Father, we pray as we've read much of your word this morning that you bless it, cause our minds and our hearts to understand it god we have no idea of how the spirit moves among his people and how he teaches so i don't claim to know what everybody needs to know but i do know everybody needs to know christ and hear about him and what he's done and who he is and how he like a lamb went silent before his shearers but lord we praise you for all the good news we've heard And I pray your blessing on the teaching now in Jesus' name. Amen. 
So the betrayal and arrest and the kangaroo court, if you will, of Jesus' trial has begun. Judas arrives with his cohorts from the Sanhedrin, sent from them, of course, the Jewish court, the leaders got together, sent this band of men armed with clubs and swords and a brilliant plan of utter deception comes to be. Judas, privileged to have been close enough to Jesus and a close enough companion to be able to greet him with a kiss on the cheek. That might sound strange to us, but it's not strange in that day. Beloved friends greeted one another this way, and Judas was privileged to be able to meet Jesus and greet him in such a way. And even used this great respect, a term of respect and endearment, called him rabbi, and then kissed him on the cheek. And it's here that Luke's recording of this incident adds for us Jesus saying these words, Judas, betrayest thou me with a kiss? We all at least know those words. We're familiar with them. Matthew says that Jesus looked at Judas and called him friend. Friend, do you do what you have come to do? We've said a lot about Judas in the past several weeks. Uh, remarkable that he could follow through with this other than the fact that this is what he was here to do. For Mark, Judas is never mentioned again. He fades away. Other gospel writers include a few things about him. And then we have Peter. According to John, it's Peter. Mark doesn't mention him. Peter pulls out a sword. He's going to defend Jesus, and he strikes the servant. One of the servants who we read somewhere else, his name is Malchus, and he cuts off his ear. And, of course, Luke records for us that Jesus tells Peter to put the sword away, touches the man's ear, and heals it. And I have to ask, if you were the servant that was there to arrest this man, they were already afraid of him. In one account we read when he answered, I am the one you're looking for, they all fell to the ground. They were horrified of him. If I was the one whose ear was cut off and he touched me and healed it, I would like to think I was smart enough to say, I think I'm going to leave this man alone. But I would probably be just like this man and continue because of the deception of the heart. In fact, the Bible is clear. Spiritual things of God cannot be discerned by carnal, fleshly men. Jesus himself said one time, you remember, though one were raised from the dead, they would not believe. Carnal, fleshly men cannot understand the divine things of God. And I point this out often. If you can understand it all, if you can hear about Jesus and know that he died for you, give God glory for that. You have ability to hear spiritual things. That's a spiritual truth that will save your soul. But Jesus shames them. In fact, you come after me like a robber? I was with you every day in the temple. I was just teaching. You could have taken me at any time. I was right there in the wide open, which really just highlights 
their deceitfulness, their evil, their wickedness. Men love darkness rather than the light because their deeds are evil. So they come arrest him in the middle of the night and try him in the night because they know what they're doing is wrong. Yet they continue to do it. And that's why he's asking them. He knows they're about to try him over his words. They're going to convict him about his teaching. So he says, why didn't you arrest me while I was teaching? You've heard what I had to say. I was in the temple. But Jesus lets them know they couldn't hear anyways or understand. And so he says, let the scriptures be fulfilled. So the difficult answer question for us is why could they not see who he was but the biblical answer is that the scriptures might be fulfilled and all of his followers did just like Jesus said they fled they left him strike the shepherd and the sheep will flee and that's what happened right and then you have this strange scene of this young man running away after being grasped by his clothing and he runs away naked. A lot of people believe this is Mark inserting himself into the story. There's really never been any proof of that. But I found it interesting that most likely, and I never thought about this or read it before, this is more fulfillment of Scripture from Amos chapter 2, verse 16. The prophet prophesying about a day of judgment to come, the day of the Lord, the day of Christ. And this is the day of Christ. We are in the last days. Amos 2.16 says, And he who is stout of heart among the mighty shall flee away naked in that day. Maybe it's just more fulfillment of Scripture. Who was this naked man? doesn't matter. He was a mighty young man, a wealthy man, obviously. He had linen clothing. But even he, the strong and the young, the stout, they flee away on this day because the shepherd has been struck. And then interestingly, Jesus is taken to the home of the chief priest. Not the typical normal place where a trial like this might take place. In, in the middle of the night, which was illegal, they take him to try him. I said it was a kangaroo court because... Of course, that's simply a way of saying you're going to get the verdict you want whether the evidence is there or not. Peter follows at a distance. And we learn also from John that he too was there. They were both following at a distance. And of course, Peter's about to deny Christ as Jesus told him he would. But it says they were seeking a testimony against him. Matthew says literally they were seeking a false testimony to put him to death. But Mark says they found none. Because many bore false witness against him. And then the false witness that they were bearing against him didn't even agree. Now that's an interesting phrase, false witness, that Mark uses. The word for witness in the New Testament is the word from where we get our word martyr. So a Christian martyr is somebody who gives a faithful witness to Christ, right? We would say that the ultimate faithful witness, we just prayed about these people, in fact, some of them that are still on earth today, a faithful 
ultimate witness of Christ is one who gives his witness to the end of his life and even gives his life because he will not deny Christ. That makes him a martyr. And the word that Mark uses here is pseudo-martyr. He says there were pseudo-martyrs here, which obviously means false witnesses. But it literally means not actually, but having the appearance of a witness. Trying to be something that they're not. I mean, it was all generated. And the testimonies don't agree because they had no testimony against Jesus. They're trying to find something. Something to soothe what little conscience they had in what they were about to do. They knew they were going to have him killed. They just needed a reason to go along with the concluded ruling. They had already decided he was worthy of dying. They just needed to find a way to convince the other people that he was worthy of dying. At least the rest of the Sanhedrin. And the best that some of them could do is to quote his own words of prophecy that they didn't even understand. At least some of them didn't. About the temple. You remember in John chapter 2, Jesus said, I'll destroy this temple, and in three days I'll build it back again without hands. And so that's what they use against him. Because most of them didn't understand what he was saying. But perhaps some of them did. Because there was a lot of prophecy regarding the Messiah who would come back one day and rebuild the temple of God, a true temple. And it was a capital offense in this day to destroy somebody's place of worship. But even in that, they couldn't get two people, two witnesses to agree. Their testimonies didn't line up. So at this point, I just see the wickedness of humanity being beyond compare. They've determined that Jesus is worthy of death, but don't even know why they want him dead. And if they do know why they want him dead, it's shameful and baseless. It's just plain old hatred. They hate him because he's spoken the truth. And he's told them of their sin. And he stood in the temple and he said things like, you've turned my father's house into a den of thieves and robbers. And he kicked over their tables. That's pretty tough preaching. It's amazing that people want to talk about how much Jesus is nothing but love. All he did was just love people and treat them so kindly. But he walked into the temple and kicked over their tables and told them to get out, that they were a bunch of brood of vipers, and they were turning the house of the Father into the den of thieves. That preaching won't go on most local channels. That's not the Jesus people have in mind. But the truth is, even if he wouldn't have kicked over tables and called people the names that he called them, just by speaking the truth, it made him hate it. They hated him because what he said, they knew to be true. You know how it is from time to time. You've been somewhere and there's been a preacher teaching, and reading the Bible and preaching the Bible, and it gets, it gets on you because you realize Man, he's talking about me. 
and he's talking about my sin. Or you just read the Bible and you get offended because you recognize the truth of it. And again, our flesh doesn't like truth. Finally, the high priest recognizes that the testimonies are bogus. They needed two testimonies to agree because they were at least going to keep that much in order. We needed the witnesses of two people to witness against this man. So far, they couldn't get it to pass. So the high priest, recognizing the inconsistencies, he looks at Jesus and says, Have you have no answer? Have you no answer to make about what these men testify you against you? Now, I hope you remember what we just had read from Isaiah 53. I mean, this is prophecy being fulfilled. He was silent before his accusers. And there's other uh, places. Isaiah 53, 7, we just read, He was oppressed and afflicted, yet opened not his mouth, like a lamb led to the slaughter, like a sheep before its shears is silent. He opened not his mouth. But also Psalm 39 and 2, I was mute and silent. I held my peace to no avail, and my distress grew worse. What about Psalm 39 and 9? I am mute. I do not open my mouth, for it is you who have done it. Now that's an interesting prophecy. Jesus fulfilling prophecy saying, I don't have to say anything. You're guilty of what you're about to do. And it's interesting that the high priest is demanding that Jesus respond to what he knows is a false testimony. The high priest knows it's false. And so Jesus is fulfilling scripture here. But further than that, he is under no obligation to respond to lies. One of the things that I hate about our current culture is that anybody can say anything against anybody. And you have to defend and prove yourself innocent of what somebody has said. If you don't believe that, just wait till this this summer and this fall when the politic culture heats back up. You're allowed to say anything about anybody, and that person is under the obligation to fix it. You're not held accountable for what lies you tell. And I think this is a great lesson time of Jesus. Remember in the last chapter, he said, hey, in these latter days, they're going to drag you before courts, and they're going to hold you up to scrutiny. Don't worry about what you say in those days. The Spirit will give you what to say. And so here's Jesus practicing that. He's being silent until the Spirit gives him what to say. So I think, yes, he's fulfilling Scripture, no doubt. But he's also under no obligation to respond to their lies. Why should he respond? What they're saying is not true. Which is probably a great thing for us to be reminded of. If a lie is being told about you, don't respond to it. It's a lie. Just move on. And especially when it comes uh, to, to any kind of persecution, persecution about your Christianity. If it's a lie, say nothing. And so the high priest takes matters into his own hands. Okay, I'm going to cut to the chase. Are you the Christ? The son of the blessed one? A lot of times the Jews during this day would add, if they spoke of God, they would add the blessed one to the end of it to make sure and to be clear that they're talking about the one true living God. 
the blessed one. And so they ask him here, are you the son of the blessed? Or he, the, the high priest, are you the Christ, the Messiah of God? And Jesus says, without any hesitation, I am. I continue to be amazed that people try to make an apologetic against Christianity by saying Jesus never claimed to be God. He often claimed to be God. There couldn't have been a much more clear proclamation than this. They understood what he was saying. They were not confused. They wanted him to testify this. I read a bunch of commentaries of very smart people, and they all said, well, he wasn't. He was simply asking the question, answering the question. The question was, are you? And it demands a response, I am or I am not. But I think there's no way to mix up the reasoning of Jesus' words. He chose to say, I am. How many times has he said, I am? Before Abraham was, I am. You remember, people didn't like that. How can you say that? You're not 30 years old. I am the bread of life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And so I think it's no doubt that what Jesus is saying here, I am. I am the son of the blessed one. I am the Christ. I am the Messiah. And if that's not enough, and you'll see the son of man, which is his own favorite self-title for himself, you'll see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with clouds of heaven. And we talked about this a little bit in, in Mark 13. I don't want to go way back deep into it. I think they saw this literally. If you look at the prophecy of Isaiah and Daniel, I think the Son of Man coming with clouds of great power and at the, seated at the right hand of God is something that happened Literally, when Rome destroyed Jerusalem just not too many years after this. And I think they'll see it again. They'll see him again in the same way. But that was a bold statement. If they had mistaken the first part, they couldn't mistake this part. He just equated that he, he equated himself with God. He's about to be sitting at the right hand of power coming with the clouds of heaven. He's suggesting that he, when God comes in judgment, he's going to come with him. And so now the scene is set. The passion of the Christ is in full swing. And remember, we talk about the passion of Christ this last week of his life, especially. And passion is not the deep, deep love of Jesus. The passion is the suffering of Christ. The suffering of his soul in anguish. And suffering for sin. He gets spit on and he gets beaten and slapped and striped. And Matthew Henry, the Puritan writer, points out, Christ has suffered in soul and now he must suffer in his outer extremities. Just the same as sin grows from our inward parts to manifest itself in its extremities, now the Son of Man will totally pay for sin from inside out so that none of our sin will be left unmet by the relentless love and grace of our Lord. That's a beautiful statement. I've never thought about it that way. Why did Jesus suffer in soul and in body? Because, friend, that's where our sin is. We're born with it, conceived in it, brought forth in it. It's in us. We do what we do outside because of who we are inside. 
And the good news of the gospel is that God says that in Christ, all the handwriting of the ordinances that were against us have been nailed to his cross. There's nothing left, in or out, that Jesus hasn't paid for. So if you don't know him, if you've never put faith and trust in him to save you from your sin, hear what the Bible is saying, what Christ himself is saying here, and what he is doing. He's already suffered in soul and anguish. We saw that in the prayer as he called out to God, if there's any other way, let this cup pass from me, but not my will, but yours be done. And obviously there is no other way. If there had been another way, the Father would have answered affirmatively, but he didn't answer. And Christ said, nevertheless, my will, but yours be done. Not mine, but yours. The only way to God is through Christ. The only way to be saved from your sin is by Jesus himself. He's enduring the lies and remaining silent. Why? So that he can pay for the lies. He endures the spitting and the slapping and the beating so he can pay for all the torment that your sin has caused you and others and for all the ways that your sin has assaulted the holiness of God. He's enduring all this that all your sin might be forgiven. It's a beautiful thing. So when we ask these questions, why couldn't they see? How did they continue on doing this? We simply let the scripture answer itself through the prayers of the ancient church in Acts chapter 4. They asked the same question. Why, quoting from Psalm 2, why did the Gentiles rage and the people plot in vain? Why did the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed? For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus whom you anointed, Herod, Pontius Pilate, we'll get to that soon, along with the Gentiles and even the leaders of Israel. And why were they gathered? Why were they raging? To do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Hey, glory, hallelujah. The plan of God from before the foundation of the world is being played out in the pages of Scripture and it's being played out in the world before us in your life and in my life as God redeems us from our sin. So yeah, I read this and think, well, what I've done differently? Hey, I just praise God I wasn't there then. I'm here now. And I've heard the gospel, and through the gospel, God has brought me to salvation and redemption, away from my sin to himself. We have a tendency to read the passion and think, if they would have only known, if they could have only seen with their eyes and understood with their hearts, this might seem backwards, but I think we rather should rejoice that the high priest was a wicked scoundrel. We ought to rejoice that Judas was a heartless, greedy traitor. That the people gathered were murderers in their hearts and liars and willing to hide under the cover of darkness to put to death this Jesus of Nazareth because through these men, God has brought redemption to his people. So well, that's a twisted way to look at it. Is there any other way to look at it? Should I be mad that God did what he did the way he did it? Or rejoice in the fact that he's done it? They were deceived that we might be forgiven of our deceit. They were blinded that we might be given eyes to see. They were hard-hearted that we might be given a new heart that is broken by the gospel and pliable and fixable. They were murderous that we might be taught to love our neighbors. Oh, the stupendous and exalted ways of the Lord that he can use even sin to bring 
sin to justice and that he can use sinners to bring sinners to the Savior. That's an amazing testimony of the grace of God. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you for your word, the truth of the gospel. Lord, we rejoice in it. Not because we deserve anything good, because we know we don't. It's the goodness of God that brings us to repentance, not our own goodness. And we just stand in awe of that today. And we're going to celebrate that by remembering Christ as we are commanded to do. We're going to take the bread that represents his body that was beaten and bruised for us, that was spat upon for us. And we're going to drink the blood, the, the wine that represents the blood that was shed for us. And even a picture of the cup that he drank all the way to the dregs, the bitter cup of the judgment and justice of God. He drank it because we weren't worthy and because we can never do enough to get there. But he drank it all the way to the bottom that we might be given the righteousness or counted the righteousness of Christ because he was made sin for us, though he knew no sin. God, help us to be united in that today, to rest in it, to rejoice in it, and bring some that have never professed faith in Christ to faith in it today. We pray this in the name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen.